And having said that, I want to add that um, that this past week I was recently jarred, uh, captivated, captured by a sonnet of all things, a sonnet. How about that? Christie is trying to, to 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 culture me a little bit. I read I read a sonnet this week. Um, I've also been jarred, by the way, and some of this is informed by Fred Long's class that he's teaching. And so, Fred, I just want to give you a shout out. There's some stuff in here that I was, it was already working, and then when I read this sonnet, it just, it just really grabbed me. Holly Ordway is the author, and the sonnet is called Maps. Maps, journey, maps. There's the connection. She talks about all kinds of maps. She talks about ancient maps from hundreds of years ago with all the fancy handwriting and the little, little designs in the corners of the maps. And then she goes on to talk about the maps, the travel maps that we used you know, only a couple of decades ago. Maybe some of you still use them. You know the Rand McNally kind of maps that you spread out on the, on the kitchen table and you, and you draw out your route and you plan where it is you're going to go. My wife loves maps. She's nodding her head. Yeah, absolutely. Those kinds of maps. But then the sonnet turns to present day. Now, she says, now GPS puts me right at the center. A Ptolemaic shift in my perspective and where I am right now, somewhere, I turn and I turn and I turn to orient myself. Some of y'all are familiar with the GPS recalculating and all that's going on. I have directions calculated. I have maps at hand, but I'm hopelessly lost till I look up last. Look up from that screen. Those screens look up from, from that GPS. Those first two lines, especially in this sonnet, really grabbed me. Now, because of the way GPS works, we know how this goes. We and where we are, that's the center. And we and where we are, we're attempting regularly to orient ourselves from us being at the center. It's just how it works <laughs> from that place. She goes on to mention the Ptolemaic shift. I thought this was a pretty wild move here. I like that. Perhaps you're familiar with Ptolemy, but more than likely we're familiar with a, a paradigm shift that took place centuries ago, the, the Copernican Revolution, right? The Copernican Revolution that helped us change our orientation from thinking that we were at the center of the universe, that the earth was at the center of the solar system, and rather Copernicus helped us to see that, no, actually the sun's at the center of the solar system. We're not quite at the center, but man, I think Holly Ordway nails it here. There are so many influences in our day that have a shifting back to that misinformed science that Ptolemy was practicing. Deeply convicting for me. This is how we live most of our lives. Now, now we, we know better. We know in our heads that this is not right, but it's how 
we operate, how I operate. But there is a call. There is an invitation. There is another gravity that invites us, calls us, warns us to get out of the center. And that call and that invitation is given to us today in our Scripture passages, I believe, over and over again, with some of the most familiar stories of our faith. And so here's, here's what I want to do. I want to invite you to, to, to look at these passages from, from that point of view. In our journey in Lent, in our journey of faith, we can be helped to get out of the GPS center of it all and truly allow God to be at center by hearing afresh and hearing anew the life-changing, the life-disrupting, disorienting, and changing call of God by encountering the life-changing breadth and depth of God's love. I think this is easiest to see in the call of Abram, Abraham. God calls him to, to leave his home, right? His family, his country, and to go where I'll show you. You just leave. You just step out. Go, and I'll show you when you're there. And in fact, in our reading, we hear that, that God points out to Abram as he gets to, to Canaan, it's going to be, this is going to be where it is ultimately. It's a radical thing that happens to Abraham and his loved ones with him. In truth, what is happening here, they're experiencing a whole new birth. This is a new birth, a new birth of a people, ultimately the birth of a nation. And with that in mind, Genesis chapter 12 helps us to see the implications that are in play when Jesus sits down with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and offers this very familiar insight to Nicodemus. Unless you are born from above, you will not see the kingdom of God. Folks, we are so familiar with this language, so familiar with this language, that it just passes right over us. It's passed over me for, for, for in many ways, and I was helped to see it this past couple of weeks. It's important for us to see that this is not simply an internal, private, little, individualized experience that we have with Jesus when we become born again or born from above. Jesus is not inviting Nicodemus into this, this personal little experience where, wow, it's like I got my, my slate cleaned and everything's new. No. Rather, the language that he's using right here is language of a new family. When you're born anew, you're born into a family. It's language of a new life orientation. It's language of new allegiances, new Everything. Marianne Mai Thompson says, Being born again entails identifying with a new people complete with its own characteristic practices and commitments. This is why being born from above includes being born both from water and spirit. This is a work fundamentally of God, not of our own. 
This is a work of the Spirit. We didn't ask to be born the first time, and we don't really have all that much to do with being born again the second time or being born from above. It is at God's initiative that we are born from above. Most commentators, they see the language of water as pointing to baptism, whether or not it's the baptism of John that happened in John chapter 1, or the baptism, the Christian baptisms that we are familiar with. The scholars agree and disagree on, on whether, which one it is that, that is, is being talked about here, but at the heart, it's the same. At the heart of baptism is the work of repentance, where we're changing our minds, we're changing our life direction, we're changing our allegiances. And it's also why Nicodemus had such a hard time. It may be a little misleading, but I want to suggest to you that Nicodemus' question that he asked, but, but, but underneath this question at the very least is this reality. Nicodemus is a child of Abraham. And that's a pretty important thing to Nicodemus. That's kind of a defining reality. For Nicodemus and for his people, and Jesus is saying, you need to be born again. You need to be born from above. To be born from above is a Copernican revolution where we're taken out of the center of our universe, and God rightly takes center stage. This call and this invitation of God is not only radical for us, it's radical in its message about God and has the chance of truly turning us around as well. God's character, God's love for the world. Nicodemus, God loves the world so much. God desires for everyone to believe in God, to trust God. God's heart is not for the world to be condemned, but rather for the world to be saved. Yes, Nicodemus, God loves you, and God loves your people, and God loves the whole world. That's how big God's love is. And here's the thing, folks, this isn't a new idea, is it? Our passages today remind us of this. This isn't a new idea with Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of this longing of God from the start all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. Abram, I will bless the world through you. I've got the world on my mind, Abram. That is why I'm blessing you for the sake of the world. Abram, you are chosen, but it's not because you're so choice. (laughs) This is Christopher Wright influence here a little bit. You are favored, but it's not because you're my favorite. Oh, man. Favored, not favorite. Chosen, but not necessarily because you're so choice. Oh, we could be helped by that. I love you, Abraham. I love the world. I will bless the whole world through you. It is a radical, life-changing, life-stretching kind of love that we are loved by, that we are washed over by, the amazing love of God. And Dear friends, I think we were challenged by this just a few weeks ago. Right here in our little town. I, don't, I think you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Probably don't have to tell you, do I? 
I want to say this. I believe a really strong, a beautiful, and a powerful work of God took place at Asbury. at The epicenter of Hughes Auditorium, Hughes Auditorium and spreading out. I personally experienced it. I have loved ones who personally experienced it. I prayed with dozens upon dozens of folks who were impacted greatly by what God was doing only a few weeks ago here in our town. But even as I say that, I want to take a moment to note that I understand that not everyone had the same experience. I attempted to speak to this on Ash Wednesday about 10 days ago, and I, I wish to make that note again. There might be some here within the sound of my voice. It, it, it wasn't as positive of an experience for you as it may have been for many around you. And I want to say two things. The first is, that doesn't negate the reality that God was indeed at work in many ways. But secondly, it also doesn't negate you. Boy, I pray you can hear that. It doesn't negate you and it doesn't negate your walk with Jesus. If your experience was not the same as you observed happening around you, and we are here. We are a family. We are here as Wilmore Anglican Church to walk together in lifelong, life-changing call that God has for each and every one of us. I pray that you can hear that and know that we can walk together, all of us. That being said, it was significant to me that as many people were receiving a blessing even as we were doing our best to try to make sense out of this blessing, to, to process and make sense out of what is going on. Can we, can we make sense? We, we had chapels about it trying to, to talk about what is happening, even in the midst of trying to understand that this, this, this work of God that seemed to be happening within our midst, we were called to make a shift. Suddenly, what did we see? We saw the world show up in our little town. Literally, the world showed up in our little town. And I actually found myself using this Genesis 12 language a few weeks ago with my family. I had not realized it was going to be the text I was going to preach on a couple of weeks later. But I actually used this. I was talking with them. I was talking with others. I was talking to myself. Remember, remember, we're blessed to be a blessing. We are blessed to be a blessing. God loves me. God loves you. God loves the world. And there is enough of God's love to go around. <laughs> there is enough blessed to be a blessing. That is how good and beautiful and wonderful the unshakable and unlimited kingdom of God is. The breadth of God's love knows no bounds. And that leads me to the depths of God's love. Here in John 3, a third thing is pointed out. It's the first significant conversation that Jesus has in the Gospel of John. And right here, three chapters in, he's already talking about his cross. To be lifted up, which is used several times in John's gospel, always points to Jesus' sacrificial 
death. Most of us know the the story of the snake of Moses that, that Jesus is referring to, but just to be sure, the account of the people of God, of the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness in Numbers 21, 5 through 8. You can look that up, Numbers 21. Israelites were grumbling against Moses, and their punishment was the invasion of poisonous snakes into their camp, killing many of them. And a remedy was given by God. Moses was to make a serpent out of bronze, put it on a pole, and hold it up for the people to look at. And those who looked at the serpent on the pole, they lived. What Jesus, in so many words, is saying, in a similar way, the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who looks to Jesus, everyone who looks to him, can be healed, not just of physical ailments, but healed from our sin and guilt and condemnation that comes with it. We look to the Son of Man dying on the cross, and we find true life, believing in him. And to be clear, this is not in any way saying that Jesus is the problem, like the snake was the problem, and that he needs to be raised up on the cross. No, it's quite the opposite. Rather, the evil sin and death which is in us, which is spread throughout the world, somehow in the miracle of God's infinite goodness, is allowed to take out its full force. On Jesus. Dorothy Sayers is a great writer from a century ago, and she has an insight that just I love and I want to share with you. She writes in 1940. She doesn't use inclusive language, but we need to hear from her, I believe, and I hope you can hear it. For whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited in suffering and subject to sorrows and death, God had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game God is playing with his creation, he's kept his own rules and he's played fair. God can exact nothing from human beings that he has not exacted from himself. God has gone through the whole of human experience. From the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and the lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and he died in disgrace and he thought it was well worthwhile. I can never get through that without choking up. This is who our God is. This is the character of the love of God. Nicodemus, the invitation invitation of God to you and to me is a life born from above, a life filled with the inexhaustible love of God, not only for you, for me, for the whole world. A life filled with the love of God that meets us in our deepest shame and sin and pain and darkness and loneliness and brings new life, healing, hope. It's the kind of love that should disorient us. It should reorient us. It should put us round right. Get us us out of the center. (laughs) Allowing the only one worthy to be at the center to be. To be our guide, 
be our God. And the invitation to you and to me, we know it well, but hear me, it hangs on the hinge of trust. Faith. It's what Romans 4 is all about. The faith of Abraham. Our faith. Sarah Birmingham Drummond, she, she writes looking at, at Romans 4 here and says just a few things that just to remind you of the truth. Abraham was righteous by trusting God, not trusted by God for being righteous. Let's get it right. He was righteous by trusting God. Abraham did not follow God's instruction to cause God to love him, but to respond to God's love for him. God's love is a free gift, and Abraham's faith is a free response to that gift. That is, in a nutshell, what Paul is saying in all that thick language there in Romans 4. Nicodemus, believe God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes will not perish have everlasting life. Trust that God is this good. Trust. One final word. Nicodemus often gets a bad rap. He came at night, right? He came in fear, perhaps. Didn't want anyone else to know about this. He came meeting at night with Jesus. But I was reminded this last week as I looked at different commentators, I was reminded how positive this encounter that Nicodemus has with Jesus was. Nicodemus is curious. He's open. He's got a lot to lose, and he discovers how much he has to lose as Jesus talks with him. And even though what he hears blows his mind and surely causes great challenges to all he's ever known and understood about God and about himself, he stays. What we learn is that Nicodemus hangs in there. He leans in. What we find is at the very end of John's Gospel, John 19, Nicodemus is there. Nicodemus is there. Trust. I don't know about you. Maybe your trust is Abrahamic. (laughs) There's not a lot of commentary between verse 1 and verse 2 in Genesis where God just says, leave everything, and all of a sudden Abraham just leaves. I suspect there was a lot going on for Abraham, (laughs) but there's no comment made. He simply leaves and he goes. Maybe your trust is like that, or maybe your trust is more like Nicodemus. (laughs) Got a lot of doubts here. My invitation to you is to lean in. Lean in. Lean in in this season of Lent, this reorienting season of Lent, this discipling basic Christianity, not, a, not super Christianity, basic Christianity season of Lent, and be renewed and reoriented by the life-changing love and the life-changing call of God on your life. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you.
Friends, let us stand together and confess our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. Confessing together. 